Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll be looking at the first two verses this morning. And the theme is on pleasing God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And it's my honor to read for you from the inspired Holy Word of God, which is given by the Spirit for our edification and blessing in Christ. So please listen carefully to the reading of God's Word. Verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And we'll stop there. May God bless the reading of His Word. So at this point in the book of Thessalonians, Paul is now shifting into a section really dealing with sanctification. And this is the general topic that will be for the rest of the letter. Uh, sanctification is a very important topic for the church. It always has been. It always will be. And sanctification is the current phase of our salvation that we are in. Believers have been and always will be justified by faith. We've been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. All of our sins have been forgiven. That is a completed event. Uh, It's perfect. You cannot be more justified than you are right at this moment as a believer in Christ. You cannot be more forgiven of your sins than you are right now as a believer in Christ. Our justification is complete. And the weakest saint is as completely justified as the strongest saint. There is no increase or decrease. Believers also look forward in the future to being glorified when we are perfected in body and soul when the Lord returns. But in between our justification and our glorification is our sanctification. And that's basically what Paul is going to be dealing with. Our sanctification is a war zone of the Christian life. It's where we live out our faith in the midst of the conflict of battling our own sinful flesh, the world, system, and Satan. So we're in a war zone. Because all of these are after us to undermine our faith, to discourage us, to get our eyes off of Christ, and to make us unuseful for the kingdom of God. And so we are in this stage of sanctification. Now when you talk about sanctification, you can define it very simply as the process of becoming holy. And when we talk about that, the Bible actually uses the word sanctification in two different ways. There is a positional sanctification that every believer already has. Sometimes you'll read in Scripture and it says we have been sanctified. That means we have been set apart 
from sin for God, and it's a position that we have in Christ. So that's our positional sanctification. That cannot change either. But the Bible also uses the word in terms of our progressive sanctification, the phase of the Christian life that we're in now on a practical level. So one good definition of progressive sanctification is the ongoing work of God's grace whereby He through the Holy Spirit enables believers to put sin to death in their lives and conforms them more and more to the image of Christ. So that's the war zone that we're in right now. That's where we meet day to day, feet on the pavement, making progress, fighting off sin, striving to be obedient and holy before the Lord. So this is the topic again that's going to dominate chapter 4 and chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Before we jump into chapter 4, I do want to just emphasize a few more things, and that's uh, about the importance of sanctification. And there's three reasons I want to cover quickly why sanctification is vital and important for all of us in this room today. The first is that it's a necessary mark of those going to heaven. As Hebrews chapter 12 says, that all believers are to pursue after peace with all men. And pursue is implied the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See, the importance of growing in sanctification is that it's one of the marks of regeneration. It's one of the marks that your nature has been changed. Not that we ever become perfect or sinless, but there should be growth in holiness or sanctification as evidence that God's Spirit lives in me, the Holy Spirit, and that He's working His grace in our life. You kind of wonder, why is a Holy Spirit called holy far more than the Father or the Son who are equally as holy as the Spirit? Well, one of the reasons possibly that the Spirit is uniquely given the title as being the Holy Spirit, though the Father and the Son, again, are infinitely and eternally just as holy, is because not only is the Spirit holy, but the Spirit works holiness in us. It is His job primarily to make us holy. So in that regard, the Holy Spirit is designed to do this work of making us more holy. Uh, This point is important because within the church today, there's a lot of teaching on easy believism, that you can just come to faith in Christ, profess faith in Christ, and, and never really pursue a life of holiness, no sanctification. You can really just kind of live any way you want to, but you're still going to go to heaven when you die. That is not what the Bible teaches. If someone comes to faith in Christ, it's because their heart has been changed, and that will result in a level or a measure of practical sanctification. So, sanctification, a measure of it, will always be joined with true justification. Another reason why sanctification is important is because it's a necessary mark of those who want to be useful to God. 
Paul exhorted Timothy with these words in 2 Timothy 2. Therefore, if anyone <clears throat> cleanses himself from these things, and that context refers to a number of different sins, if he cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a vessel for honor, <clears throat> sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. So if you and I want to be useful to Jesus Christ in advancing <clears throat> the kingdom of God, then we need to strive to cleanse ourselves from unrighteousness, to be a vessel of honor, sanctified, and useful. So sanctification is an important part of usefulness in the kingdom of God. And thirdly, <clears throat> it is our duty to pursue it. Paul told again the Romans in his letter, chapter 6, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So that's our duty as believers, to present the members of our body as slaves to righteousness that we might grow in sanctification. So it's our duty to pursue after it. So if you look now at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, we now see where Paul begins to take up this theme of sanctification and exhort and encourage the saints to pursue it. Notice again verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. And if you look down at verse 3, <clears throat> he will say, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then he starts getting into the nitty-gritty of how sanctification needs to be lived out in our life. But now in verse 1 and 2, he introduces that whole concept and that whole theme of, of sanctification. So it's important that as worldly values slip into the church, and they are, throughout the world, that there is a clear and plain teaching on the practical and ethical lifestyle of the church. And that's why Paul is now heading in that direction. So parents need to teach their children the moral law of God at home. Churches need to teach both the gospel and the law of God as properly understood so that each of us are going to pursue sanctification in every area of our life so that our life might be pleasing to Him. Remember previously back up in chapter 3, Paul says, I really want to come to you so I can complete what is deficient in your faith. Well, until he can actually get there, he's going to write this letter and start the ball rolling. He wants to complete what is lacking in their faith. And what he will do in this uh, first 10 verses of chapter 4, he will break it down into the importance of pleasing God. That's verse 1 and 2. That's what we'll look at this morning. Secondly, 
sexual self-control. That'll be verses 3 through 8. And then emphasize again, loving one another. That's in verse 9 and 10. So that's where he's heading in this first part of of chapter 4. So notice how he begins in verse 1. Finally then. Now when, when Paul uses this expression, the English suggests, okay, he's about to wrap things up now. But that's really not what this phrase means in the Greek. It really carries the idea that he's moving on to remaining topics that he wants to address. He's starting a new section that will involve a number of exhortations to live a sanctified life. So it's not saying, okay, finally, this is, I'm at the very end, I'm just wrapping up. No, it's I'm moving on to more uh, information I want to give to you. And their sanctification is foremost on his mind. Now notice again what he says in verse 1. We request and we exhort you in the Lord Jesus... So it's not only a request, he's actually exhorting them in Christ that as they receive from us instruction how they ought to walk and please God, that they excel still more. So notice he's reminding them what he taught them when he was there. Just as you received from us when we were there with you before we had to run out and leave town, you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. The word to walk is a figure of speech for just how one generally lives out their life. Your walk describes the overall pattern and conduct of your life. You either walk in righteousness or you walk in unrighteousness. So again, he had instructed them previously and he's reminding them again that I've taught you how you should live your life and please God. And please God becomes really the very core of what sanctification is all about when we live it out. He'll then get into sanctification. How do we please God practically? Well, you avoid sexual immorality. You love one another. And then he moves on into other topics as well. But all of this is kind of rooted in his instruction previously. This is how you need to live your life. And this is how you need to please God. You need to live your life to please God. Christians should reflect a transformation in our life. Again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. But there should be changes in our life compared to our old nature. We should live differently. We should no longer live in tune with the values of the world around us, the immorality, the paganism around us. Our lives need to be different. We need to be different at work. We don't give in to the unethical business practices that are in the world around us. We don't become lazy on our job, but we seek to be diligent. We should be different. We should stand out. The hedonistic worldview of the first century made pursuing one's pleasures a virtue. So that life was all about living to please me. That was hedonism. That was the day back then. Has much changed even today? I mean, our world system, I mean, commercials, everything else is, is do it to please you. You're worth it. Do it to make yourself happy. That same hedonism really is quite prevalent within our own day as well. 
when you look at our former depraved pleasures, it was all rooted about making me happy, seeking what my lust desires and desires want. Remember some of the descriptions of our old sinful pleasures when we were still unregenerate. Paul describes them as being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I mean, how many people does that describe today? They're enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. I'm a slave to living my life for me. Nobody else. All I care about is me. And then James says, your pleasures wage war in your members. And this is part of our depravity. This is what described us in uh, our unregenerate days. But believers, you see, should live to please God, not just to focus to please ourselves. And one of the great examples of this, even in the Old Testament, was Moses. Remember Hebrews chapter 11 that says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, he he lived in the palace. Talk about the opportunities to have everything your flesh could want. He was in a position where he could gratify and satisfy all of the lusts of his nature. But by God's grace, he was changed. And choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than even the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So Moses becomes really a great example of what we should be like. We should have as a goal in our life to live our life to please God. To have a deliberate, conscious desire to live my life and every part of it to please God and not just please myself. That's not always wrong to please oneself, but it's, there's, there's obviously a huge sinful side to that as well. And what the focus of the Apostle Paul is to the Thessalonians is when I was with you, you remember when I was with you, I was instructing you from the Lord and in the Lord that you need to walk this way and please God. And I'm reminding you of that again. Please God. That's the goal. That's the exhortation. That's what's going to advance your sanctification. If in your mind, that is the passion of your heart is to please God. If it's not, then we need to ask the Lord to forgive us and give us a heart that will. So believers need to learn to say no to our sinful pleasures and yes to pleasing God. Now notice he goes on to add in verse 1, that you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do. And you may say, well, golly, I guess they're all, they've already arrived. You know, they're already doing it, so, you know, job done. But he's saying that to encourage them. He's saying that to commend the majority within the church. But obviously, they're still young in their faith. They're still immature. There's still a lot of temptations, a lot of dangers. There's still a lot of areas where some of them are struggling. 
So on the one hand, he commends them just as you actually do walk. Timothy has brought back this report that, that you're basically doing well, most of you. But even for those of you who are doing well, excel still more. Get better at it. That's a thrust. You can never get to the point, okay, I'm living a life pleasing to God, and that's it. No, excel still more. So he's exhorting them to abound in pleasing God. To make it more abundant in your life that you're focusing on pleasing God rather than pleasing yourself. Make pleasing God increase in your life and overflow in your life to a greater and higher degree. So that the life of pleasing God is to be increasing throughout our life. We'll never reach the finish line. We'll never get to the point where our sanctification is complete and perfected. So that no matter how godly or mature we might become, there's always more to attain to when it comes to living a life that pleases God. So that young believers are to learn it. Old believers are to learn it. This is one of the great things that Paul is setting before the church. This is your job. This is your goal. Live your life to please God. Think about it. Embrace it. Pursue it. And then he adds in verse 2, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now he's reminding them that when he was back with them, he's uh, what he was commanding and teaching them was not stuff Paul was making up that was coming directly from Christ himself. He wasn't just giving them novelty doctrines or watering down the commandments that he was giving to them basically came with the authority of the Lord Jesus. They came from Christ, from his disciples, from the revelations that he received directly from the Lord. And so basically, he wants them to remember that. These commandments included live a life to please God. So these instructions mentioned here are very practical, moral. Some of them he's going to bring up again in the letter. But their walk of faith needs to match their profession of faith. And that's the point. They need to learn to walk the talk. So as we go back, I want to camp now really on this exhortation to walk and please God. Because I think this is something that uh, I know I need to be reminded of uh, each and every day to live my life not for me, but to live it to please God and make that the ambition. So there are several things I want to emphasize on just this topic of pleasing God. Because it's vital to the Christian life that you and I strive to embrace this this philosophy of living. Living to please God. Not living to please ourselves. To live to please ourselves really is displeasing to God. We need to get our focus off ourselves. And Lord, what can I do to please You? Is this decision going to honor You? Is it going to please You? Or is it not? And that is our ambition, is to do that. Now, obviously, Paul isn't saying this as a means of earning their salvation. It's merely a means of living out a thankful heart for our salvation, that we want to please God and not just ourselves. 
Christ came and died for us. He sacrificed Himself that we might be saved. And children should have the natural uh, desire to please their, their father. Please their parents. Please their father. Uh, children do that. If they're clothed and in the right mind and their sin nature isn't controlling them, children want to please their parents. And because we're children of God, we want to please our Father. It should be in there. It's part of the, the work of grace in our hearts, a desire to please our Heavenly Father. The more I find pleasure in pleasing God, the more sanctified I will become. The more I find pleasure in pleasing me, the more unsanctified I will become. So that's why the Christian life involves a lot of self-denial rather than self-indulgence. So when it comes to pleasing God, and I just I kind of got sidetracked on that this week, and I want to just go over a bunch of stuff on pleasing God because I think it'll help us in our own Christian lives and in our own sanctification. One of the things I want to start out by saying about it is that Christ is our example because Christ pleased the, the Father perfectly. Notice in John 8.29, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. I mean, imagine saying that. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. That's what our Lord Jesus was. In Psalm 40, He says, I, prophetically in that psalm, He says, I delight to do Your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So that Christ is our example. If we want to live a life pleasing to God, Christ is our example. Because He did it. He's the only one who did it. So He becomes our perfect example. We also read Paul's own perspective is that he was not a people pleaser because if you're a people pleaser in general, you're not going to be a Christ pleaser. And Paul in several contexts, mainly in preaching the Gospel, said he was not trying to please men. He was trying to please God. So earlier in Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul could say, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. And to the church of Galatia, he wrote, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So Paul said that he was not a men pleaser when it came to the gospel. The gospel is hard. The gospel is offensive. The gospel tells people they are sinners. And if we try to be a man pleaser, then all we're going to try to do is to pat them on the back and tell them how good they are and, and how much everything is great and how much God is so impressed with them and loves them. But the gospel brings the issue of sin. And it brings the issue of a day of judgment coming. And the only way for sinners to escape it is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's being a God pleaser when we tell the truth of the Gospel. And Paul was committed to doing that. Now on another level, he said that 
He, was, he tried to please all men in all things. And that is his general demeanor when he was among different groups of people in 1 Corinthians 10. He tried his best not to give offense because the gospel in and of itself would be the offense, but in his own personal mannerisms and the way he related to them, he tried to please them so that he could bring them the gospel. So there is a distinction there that Paul would make at times. But in general, his heart was to please God. And he, he's encouraging us to do the same. Paul said in other places that pleasing God was his ambition. Is it ours this morning? Is pleasing God our ambition? Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. That's it. Paul says he gets up every day and his ambition is not to become a gazillionaire. It's not to become a tycoon. My ambition today is to live to please my God. That's what I am after that's what I'm motivated to do. That's the ambition of my heart and everything I do to please Him. And in Colossians, he wrote, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He's writing this as Paul's desire for the Colossians. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul prayed, he labored so that the churches would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in every area of your life. Every area. And bear fruit and grow in the knowledge of God. That's Paul's ambition. That was his goal. And he wants it to be our goal as well. To live a life to please God. That's my aim. Oftentimes we fall short of that. But this is the goal, the key of sanctification, to live to please God. Another thing I, I point out is that a life pleasing to God is pleasing to God. It's kind of a redundant. What I mean by that is that uh, if, if you're living a life that's pleasing to God, God may very well at times be pleased to bring some extraordinary blessings in your life. In Hebrews 11.5, we read that by faith, Enoch, everybody remembers Enoch, was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. He lived a life pleasing to God. And because of that, God bestowed upon him one of the most unique experiences of anyone on earth and that's to be taken up to heaven without dying. I don't know how that works. But Enoch was given that blessing because he was pleasing to God. You see, a life pleasing to God is pleasing to God. If you live a life with your ambition to please Him, that pleases Him. So when we live that way, He delights in that. And no, it's not a guarantee, but sometimes He may bestow upon you some incredible uh, blessings. So, real quickly, how do we please God? 
Well, I just kind of did my concordance search and I came up with, with a few suggestions of how we can live our life to please God. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it's impossible to please God. So we've got to come to the Word of God and believe it. That pleases God. We've got to believe in the promises of God. We've got to believe in the doctrines of God. We've got to believe in them. We've got to come to the Lord in faith. Trust in His promises. Trust in Him. That always pleases Him. Without faith, no way will please God. John also tells us in 1 John 3.22 of the importance of obedience. That pleases God. He says, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. See, keeping the commandments of God is pleasing to God. Now this is in the context of receiving answers to our prayers, but it's linked to obedience which is pleasing to God. If the Spirit of God is convicting you of an area of disobedience in your life, that is not pleasing to God. And part of our sanctification is the Spirit to convict us in areas of our life where we are disobedient and displeasing to God so that we can confess it and be forgiven and then move forward in sanctification again. But one of the things that pleases God is when His children strive by the grace of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to the Lord. There are some other things, though, that are pleasing to God. Hebrews 13, verse 16 says, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. See, God is pleased when we deny ourselves, our time, or what we want to do, and we do good for other people. When we share, these are sacrifices. I have to deny self and sacrifice things that maybe I want for the sake of ministering to other people in the church, outside the church. And whenever we sacrifice and do good and are a blessing to others, that pleases our God. You know why? Because it reflects Him. Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And when He sees that in us, that sacrifice, that giving, that doing good, that sharing for the needs of others, then our God is pleased. He is pleased. Romans 8 verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So whenever the flesh begins to well up within us, those fleshly desires, I want to do what I want to do, or the temptations to sexual immorality, or whatever the flesh is craving, we need to deny it. We need to abstain from it. We need to say no to it. Because those who are in the flesh cannot please God at all. So it's a motivation to always be putting off the old man, putting on the new man. And 1 Kings chapter 3 gives us another insight as to what pleases God. And here we read, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Can anybody remember what 
what Solomon asked for when God gave to him. I mean, imagine a, a just an open-ended request that God says, ask of me anything and I will give it to you. I mean, how many of us would not drool to have an opportunity like that? So what did Moses ask for? Wisdom. He was not thinking of himself. He was thinking of all these people he had to judge. All these people that he was king over. He says, well, Lord, give me a heart of wisdom that I might discern how to judge your people in equity and godliness. And God said, well, Moses, since you in humility, that's the key here, humility chose for a blessing that you can be a blessing to others and did not ask for riches. You did not ask for long life. You did not ask for the life of your enemies. Therefore, I will give you far more blessings than just what you asked for. Why? Because humility is pleasing to God. When God sees humility within us, He delights in it. Because again, he sees the humility of his son, who though he existed as God in heaven, humbled himself and came down to earth to take a second nature, a sinless human nature. He delights in humility. And when we show that humility, the Lord is pleased in that as well. Well, there's a few more. Psalm 69, verse 30 and 31 I will praise the name of God with song and magnify Him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox. And here we're talking about an ox as a sacrifice. But what the Lord is saying, what pleases me is praise and, and song and singing and thanksgiving. That pleases me when my people are worshiping me when they're praising Me, when they're giving thanks for the bounty of the blessings I've bestowed upon them, that pleases Me. Pleases any father. When that child comes up and, and says to their, to their dad, oh dad, thank you so much. Wow, you gave me whatever it was. And thank you, Father. It pleases. And it pleases our Heavenly Father when we as His children don't take for granted the blessings that He pours out on us, but we give Him thanks and praise and sing to His, to His glory because of those blessings. Not only our temporal blessings, but most of all our spiritual blessings in Christ. And then Psalm 147, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and wait for His loving kindness. So the Lord delights, He takes pleasure when we walk in the fear of the Lord and we wait upon His loving kindness. Those are also ways in which the Lord takes pleasure in, in us. Well, another thing that God does is God has pleasure, which is kind of an awesome thought in and of itself. Uh, we know pleasure when we have it. We can experience pleasure. But an infinitely holy God also has pleasure on, on, on God's level of pleasure. It, it's, it's infinite. It's eternal. It's holy. 
But God has pleasure. We can please Him. And that's what Paul is emphasizing in this whole thing. But I want to just say a few more things that God takes pleasure in. God takes pleasure in His people. If you know the Lord and saving faith this morning, if you've turned from your sin and trusted Christ alone to forgive you, God takes pleasure in His people. Psalm 149 verse 4 says that, for the Lord takes pleasure in His people. His people, of course, have been chosen from before the foundation of the world. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, having predestinated us unto adoption of children by Jesus Christ Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. It was God's pleasure to choose you from among the fallen race of man. It was God's good pleasure to save you. God has pleasure in His people. So God takes pleasure in all of His, His redeemed children. But secondly and awesomely, God took pleasure in sending His Son. Colossians 1.19 says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. So in the eternal counsel of God, the eternal covenant of redemption, the Father chose to send the Son. The Son came down from heaven and took on Himself a human nature. And in that human nature, that one person existed full deity and full humanity. And this is a mystery. But it was the Father's pleasure for all of the fullness of the divine nature to indwell Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. But that mystery of the two natures in one person was an expression of God's good pleasure for that to take place. Why? Why did the Father take pleasure in sending His Son down from earth so that He would be the holy, sinless God-man. Because He delights in His people. But how can God delight in His people when we by nature are children of wrath? When we by nature are rebels? How can God have pleasure in people when we have sinned against Him and deserve His wrath and judgment? He can have pleasure in us because He had pleasure in sending His Son to come down to earth to be our only mediator. And then, look at this, God took pleasure in sacrificing His Son. That's how He can have pleasure in us. He took pleasure in sacrificing His Son that we might be saved. Isaiah 53 blows my mind. Verse 10 The Lord was pleased. It pleased the Father to crush Him, Jesus, His Son, putting Him to grief if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. And He will see His offspring. He will prolong His days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. You see, the only way that God can have pleasure in His people is to send His Son and it pleased the Father to crush His Son on the cross to judge Him so that our sins might be forgiven that the Lord can have pleasure in us. It's ultimately 
all going back, our redemption, our salvation, our whole life, our existence is all ultimately due to the pleasure of God. So God can take pleasure in His people who justly deserve His wrath because He has predestinated His Son to come and bear our sins and be crushed in our place that we might be forgiven, adopted into His family as children in whom the Father takes pleasure in. But that never would have happened without the pleasure of Christ the pleasure of the Father in crushing His Son to save us. It's a mystery. It's an amazing amazing thing that God can delight in us because He delighted in His Son and the sacrifice that He made on our behalf. So in conclusion, Paul's thrust in these first two verses really finds the core in this exhortation to walk and please God. To make it our ambition to please God. To excel all the more in pleasing God. If you're living a life that pleases God today, praise God. But there is far more that we can do, that we can grow in to please God. And the best way to please God is to keep our eyes upon Him who perfectly pleased the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. To run the race well, we must keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The more we keep our eyes on Christ, His love, His humility, His obedience, His willingness to be crushed for our sins, the more we become like Him. And the more we become like Him, the more we are pleasing to the Father. What we have to fight daily is the fog of life that comes in and clouds our vision of the Lord Jesus Christ to make us more self-centered, to make us more focused on what can I do to please me today. And whenever that fog comes in, then our sanctification stalls out. Our progress in the things of God struggles. It's like read a story of Florence Chadwick back in the year 1952 who decided to attempt and be the very first woman to swim from the shore of California out to Catalina Island 26 miles away. So she was going to swim that. So she was a long distance swimmer so she planned it all out. She got her team that accompanied her in a couple of boats. She dove into the water and started swimming 26 miles to get to Catalina Island. She swam for hours. She started doing well. She was good pace. She could see Catalina Island off in the distance and that kept her going, kept her motivated. She went for 15 hours swimming in the ocean and then a thick fog set in and clouded her vision of the shoreline. And because her vision was clouded, it undermined her confidence. And she began to, to call out to the people in the boat saying, I don't think I can make it. I, I, I doubt that I'm going to be able to make it. I can't see where I'm going. I can't see the end of it. She swam for another hour. And then finally she quit and crawled into the boat. 
As she was sitting in the boat with her shoulders slumped over, the fog began to dissipate. And she looked out and she saw that the coastline was only about a mile away. If she had just kept going a little bit further, she would have made it. You and I can get into that kind of circumstance when the fog of life begins to come in and it turns our gaze inward or to all the things that are just right around us in life. And when that fog blows in, we see the goal. We see the target. We see what we're aiming at. Jesus Christ. Pleasing Him. And then suddenly our life begins to go in the opposite direction. It's all about me. It's all about my stuff. It's all about my happiness. And then I stop pleasing God because I'm only living to please me. Interesting, two months later, Florence Chadwick dove into the water again, same place, trying it a second time. Again, the fog rolled in. But in this time, she says she deliberately kept an image, a picture in her mind of the shoreline so that even though she couldn't see it, she could see it. And she kept swimming and eventually arrived and became the first woman to make that swim. What we need to do in in our own sanctification is to fight the battle to keep the fog away. Anything that would deter us from keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. The more we see Christ, the more we're aimed at Him, the more we love Him, the more we want to imitate Him, then the better we will be able to please God because He did it perfectly. And the more we imitate Christ and the more our gaze is upon Jesus Christ, the better we'll be able to live a life that pleases God. And our sanctification will continue to to make progress. Well, may God help us because we all struggle in this area. But may the Lord help us to fix our eyes upon Christ and learn from Him that we might please God and excel all the more. May the Lord help us. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for this challenge from the Apostle Paul to make this the one passion of our life, not to please ourselves, but to please You. And Father, we just pray that You would forgive us because how often, Lord, we are just so wrapped up in our own little lives that we totally forget and ignore You, because of this fog that is rolled in, we don't even think about You. We don't lift our eyes up to heaven in prayer. We're just kind of stuck in this fog. And all we can see is the stuff just right immediately around us. But Lord, by Your Spirit, blow away that fog and help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith that we might learn from Him what it means to live a life that pleases God. And by seeing Christ more and more, may our life be lived more and more to please You. So help us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.